Waves crashed against the ship as the sailors battled the unforgiving might of the Pacific Ocean. Three days earlier, the Sea Dragon had departed Vancouver, Canada with an all-female crew. Their mission? To study the hidden world of microplastics. And though they had been drawn to the squall by science, that night, as their instruments went dark, the women forged a bond that would last a lifetime. Today's guest was on that ship. She joins us now to tell us why there are no limits to what women can do. Today's guest is an author, a filmmaker, and an explorer. Her name is Sarah Mitchler. She joins us now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Joe. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you for making time uh, out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Of course. I mean, I have to admit, I have more time now than I feel like I normally do being stuck in one location, but it's, it's good. It's yeah. wonderful. There's where many you, benefits. Where you hold up during a quarantine? So I'm with my family, my parents right now on Nantucket Island, which is actually, I have to admit, I feel so lucky that um, my family has always been coming to this little island because it's been a, an amazing place to be. Um, we, I am able to go out in nature every day to um, see the beach. It's one of the most eastern points of the United States, and it's, it's been wonderful to be here. It's, it has a dark history of whaling, this island, yeah. but it's, it's very progressive now um, environmentally. And they banned plastic, I think, at least two years ago, and every house is required to compost. And so it's very refreshing being here and being surrounded by people who take environmental issues so seriously. Yeah, so Sarah is an environmental expert. Um, you've got a degree in environmental conservation, is that correct? Maybe I should give a little bit of background um, on, on myself and kind of leading up to these. Because, so basically, I uh, now work as an environmental educator, but when I left university, um, undergrad, I, I went to Cornell and I left and I thought I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. Okay. And I started producing um, documentaries and uh, commercials and short films. And two years ago, I co-produced my first feature film. What was and the name of that? It's Semperify. Okay. 
It came out last year, and it's about a, a group of Marines, Marine reservists in 2005. And it's a fun movie. You should, if anyone wants to see a fun movie, it's, um, it has a little bit of, it has drama, a little bit of thriller, and it's a, it has some emotion. So it's a fun mix. Um, but I decided after we wrapped that movie that I would join this group of women um, to sail through the Pacific Ocean to study plastic. And that decision, it just totally changed my career path and my outlook on life and led me to want to go back to school to receive my master's and to use uh, film and the arts to teach children about the environment. And um, when I was starting this uh, sort of new journey, I, because of my filmmaking experience, it really taught me how powerful story is, mm -hmm. especially with children um, in teaching. And you really can't, you can't, children need to love and want to and care about something in order to protect it. Mm -hmm. And often with the environment that's missing, especially in children's literature, um, there are a few classic stories such as Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, which um, <laughs> does such Lorax. a good job. I love The Lorax. It does such a good job in, in, in telling these um pretty heavy topics but in a fun memorable way and so that led me to to write these uh the series of children's books which hopefully will be out in the next six months to a year and it follows a little girl named bz and she goes on a number of environmental adventures um and the first one is uh about plastic which i thought was fitting since that has been such a big theme in my life so what's that process like? I mean, do you just sit down one day on Nantucket and you're like, I'm going to create a, a, a lead character and I'm going to make my own story? Because that's very different from like <laughs> filmmaking at a, uh, at a level where you're directing people or even like documenting what's happening. You're like literally making all of this up out of your head. Yeah, you know, it's been really fun. And it, it is a little bit like that. So I named her BZ because uh, it was a family nickname and no one really knows where it came from. Obviously, Sarah sounds nothing like BZ, yeah. but my dad started calling me BZ Bones one day, I think, and it just kind of led to Bees and BZ. And my close friends and family all call me Bees or BZ. Do you and think so your thought, dad was like a closet Bone Thugs and Harmony fan? Or? <laughs> Maybe. I should ask him. <laughs> Um, yeah, but so I thought it was a fun, unique name, uh, for, for a character. And I love that it's to be a girl because, uh, I think it's important to highlight women explorers. Um, yeah. and, and so the process, it kind of is a little bit like that. I, um, I usually pick a topic first, so uh, the first one is about a plastic bag and she goes on this adventure when her plastic bag blows away from her school lunch one day and she's following it through the city. It goes down into this gutter, um, which often happens with plastic bags especially, and falls out into the ocean and this is when she loses the bag and then the bag itself goes on this whole adventure in the ocean um, and a whale eventually eats it. And the whale comes up to the surface and Beezy comes down to the dock and sees the whale. 
and has a slight Moby Dick moment where then she crawls inside the whale and um, into the stomach of the whale and discovers all of this plastic pollution from bottle caps to um, straws to tires and she tries to pull it out and in the end she she decides she doesn't she no longer wants to use these plastic bags or these flying bags because this bag flew away from her um, and she would rather she makes a behavioral change where she uh, switches to a canvas bag that can't fly away and escape her and so it's trying to teach children about um, these very important issues but in a fun um, adventure sort of way and yeah. so the idea just kind of came after I picked a topic and then I'll try to create a story out of that topic. <laughs> it almost reminds <laughs> me of like James and the giant peach only the peach is a whale and it's full of trash. Yeah, totally. Totally. The next one is about gardening, which is a whole other world, but I think super important to teach kids. No one really understands where their food comes from. If you ask a lot of kids, Hey, where did, where do you get your food? They'll often say a grocery store, which is, not really literally true. true but like not actually true where it comes from you know so so before we kind of move on and i want to ask you more about your sailing adventures i'll say that the gardening thing um yeah it's something that i experienced during quarantine because when covid19 hit i was moved from travel channel over to hgtv um discovery oh, networks owns like all right. those properties and thank God, like rather than just firing me straight up, my editor said, hey, um, can you write about plants and aphids? And I'm like, no, hey, like, I don't know anything about that shit. But yeah, I'll try. So cool. Yeah. And I planted a garden on my patio. No I way. That's so awesome. I did. What did you plant? Uh, it's like green beans and tomatoes and just stuff that I can go outside and like grab and have a snack yeah. or like put it in dinner. And, and you've, have you eaten it? Have it's yeah. grown enough? That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's been good. I think I'm going to keep doing that. Um, even though yeah. it's hard, like normally I'm traveling quite a lot, but I think yeah. it's doable. It's totally doable. And that's a big part of what I want to have come out of these books is, uh, you know, with BZ, the gardening one takes place in a, um, city and she discovers one day a truck is backing up and it breaks open part of it. And she discovers in this hole in the cement sidewalk that there's soil. And so, you know, it's a little exaggerated. I don't know if you could actually do it, especially because in New York City, a lot of the soil is contaminated. But in this fantastical world, <laughs> yeah. of she grows this little um, vegetable garden in this crack in the sidewalk. Um, and it's so doable and a lot of organizations, there's great organizations in many cities across the world, really, that are starting to encourage, um, people growing their own vegetables and with kids, especially, you know, that it's hard to get kids to eat vegetables, but if you grow it yourself, there's a different sort of pride that comes with eating something that you saw grow in front of you totally. and kids are into it. Totally. So, it's a little morbid because it's like I knew you from a seed, and now right? <laughs> I will end, like I will end you. Totally, totally. Uh, uh, but it feels like you deserve it in a way too. You worked for that meal. Exactly. <laughs> um, so on the subject of of women and exploration, uh, you yourself are now certified badass woman of exploration. Thanks in part to this phenomenal project you took part of, which you alluded to earlier. 
It's called X Expedition. I want you to tell us about this journey through the ocean. How did you decide to do this? I mean, why sailing of all things? Was it scary? Were you like afraid? Were you nervous? Break it down. Yeah, totally. So X Expedition is an awesome, awesome organization. And it was founded by Emily Penn, who's a sailor. And she's crisscrossed her way around the globe's oceans and slowly watched plastic accumulate in every part of the globe. And um, this led her to want to, um, to start this organization. And she read that microplastics show up in marine life, and she began to wonder about their effects on human health. And so years ago, she decided that she wanted to test uh, her own body to see if she um, has any of these toxins and microplastics inside her and she discovered that her body contained 29 of 32 banned toxins, wow. many which are endocrine disruptors. And so they're linked to reproductive um, issues, developmental issues, neurological issues. And what's more, um, she learned that not only do most women unknowingly carry these toxins in their bodies, but they can pass them on to the next generation. So in many ways, plastic is a women's issue. And not many people realize that. And so she decided to found this organization, um, which is basically a series of women-led research voyages focusing on microplastics. And their mission, which I think is really cool, is to make the unseen seen. So not only is that, does that apply to plastic in our oceans, but it also applies to shining a light on women thriving in these traditionally male-dominated fields such as science, um, STEM in general, photography, sailing, and exploration. Um, so I learned about Emily. I met her actually in New York City at, um, at an event. I'm trying to think of what event it was, but she was so inspiring. She was speaking, and she is an incredible speaker. She, um, and I went up to her afterwards, and I asked if they were doing any... Uh, and we developed this friendship, and uh, I, I uh, decided to do the trips in the Pacific Ocean. And Just on, on our a voyage, whim, or were you, were you like... No, I mean, it took a few months to plan. I think I was still filming the movie at the time, and so I had to wait. I had to match up, and, and I also had to apply. She handpicks the entire crew, and she wants it to be a balance. Um, because everyone comes from different backgrounds. And so it's not all scientists. It's, um, we had two lead, lead scientists, which were incredible women, um, which I can speak more about in a minute. So we had scientists, we had a photographer, we had a BBC reporter, we had um, two filmmakers. I was one of the filmmakers. I made a short little info documentary. Um, and we had another filmmaker from the UK, and she handpicks this crew um, that complements each other and can really uh, work well together in a way that can try to have the most change and impact uh, post the trip. And so I think we were from five different countries, our crew. Uh -huh. And it's incredible. And um, so our two scientists, just to give them a little shout out, one was, her name was Dr. Is Dr. Imogen Napper, and she's from the UK. Um, and is awesome. And she has, has uh, been a part of, she's a National Geographic Explorer. She's been a part of incredible um, 
research that has come out of her university. I think it's the University of Plymouth. And then we also had another marine biologist, Laura Leva from Honduras. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing because she was able to, um, to do a bunch of interviews in Spanish that could then go to Latin America. And she, it was so inspiring. So are they sort um, of directing also the non-scientists? Like, because I'm assuming yeah. you're on a ship, so everybody has to pitch in, even if you're a photographer. Exactly, exactly, and it's super hands-on. And so everyone suddenly uh, was doing science, which is so great. And you're suddenly helping um, collect data samples um, for universities with people. I don't have a science background specifically, and so I learned so much. And um, it was it was super inspiring and how we just to paint the picture. So how we sort of the main place uh, way that we would get our data was that we used something called a mantotrol, which is named so because it it resembles the ray. So how it works is that once this mantotrol is dropped into the ocean, it has these wings that keep it bobbing along the surface and its mouth is essentially an opening in the metal. It filters seawater into a fine net sleeve that trails behind this, the wings to catch any debris, uh, any of the plastic debris. And so you would drop this trawl into the ocean and you would leave it there for 30 minutes and it just kind of bobs alongside our sailboat. And then we would raise the manta trawl out of the water and empty the sleeve and it had this kind of three-layered sieve, and all inorganic material was plucked out of it. We used tweezers a lot of the time, and it was transferred into these vials that we would mark with the date and the coordinates um, for later examination. And so a lot of our, our um, samples, we would eventually ship back to the universities who were conducting the um, research, but obviously we had to wait until we were back on land for that. So when we talk about microplastics, um, yeah, this is something I wrote an article. Um, it's a, <laughs> I have a very diverse audience, I guess. So um, a lot of my followers are are freshwater fishermen from the U.S. Amazing. Um, I write for Bassmaster Magazine every month. I have a couple stories and. They gave me an unusual opportunity in the spring to write about microplastics in freshwater fisheries. Um, and I cool. found it like one of the most important things is to, to define what microplastic is to people. Can you tell people what that totally. is? Totally. Yes, I think that's really important. So um, what many people don't realize, and this is what makes uh, plastic pollution in the ocean so difficult, is that plastic photodegrades. So it breaks down in the presence of sunlight into tiny pieces. And those pieces are about the size of a sesame seed and are known as microplastics. And scientists refer to them um, as primary or secondary microplastics, um, in my understanding. And primary are those that enter the environment as microplastic, such as fibers that can come off when you wash your clothes Um, which is a huge issue scientists are discovering, or microbeads that uh, were often found in face washes or different um, products, personal products like that. Um, Those are primary microplastics. And then secondary microplastics, which are more prevalent in the environment, um, happens when a larger piece of plastic 
breaks down into these micro-sized So like pieces. a Coke bottle or something. Totally. A Coke bottle, a uh, plastic bag, a water bottle. Um, and the microplastic, these tiny little sesame seed-sized pieces, is what is so difficult. You essentially, there's no way in, uh, for, from what I understand, to clean that microplastic up. And that was the most disturbing part about this trip. So I remember within the first few hours of setting off on our expedition, Emily asked us to prepare the mantletrol for our first sample. And I remember thinking to myself, it seemed a bit soon that the water looked perfectly clear. And I understand we were leaving from Vancouver. And so I understand that um, you, you know, we want to have data near, um, near cities and near where a lot of people are. But I just was thinking, there's no way we're going to see anything. We would have to get much closer to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch to start our samples. But um, our first mantletrol exposed at least 10 or so brightly colored microplastics to the naked eye. You did not even need a microscope for this. Wow. Um, within sight was, of the city. Yeah, within sight of the city. And they were all different shapes and sizes. And they're, they're bright blue, bright yellow, white. And I remember seeing at least one red, which was definitely a fiber from a piece of polyester or nylon clothing. And I was just utterly shocked that the water looked so blue and untouched in this area and yet could have so many of these tiny bits of plastic. And if, if that was just in our first you know, day, trip out right when you leave, think about just how prevalent it is. And I don't think there was a single sample that didn't have microplastic in it. On and how many trip. samples did you take per day? We would do probably one every other hour so a number of them probably at least like six to eight a day do you want to walk us through what life is like on board i mean you're, you're yeah. on a boat i'm assuming you've never met some of these other women before no i had never met i think i had only met emily i had not met anyone else and so you so it was a 72 foot boat um named sea dragon right. and it's a pretty big <laughs> boat yeah it, it is a pretty big boat and um, so you walk on board and down below there are bunks and I remember we were all assigned a number and so I was so excited. I felt like a kid because I got top bunk, which is, which is so silly to think about, but it, it was very exciting. And so you go down and you see your bunks and in some rooms, uh, there are three rooms of bunks and in some there are just two bunks and in others there were three people on top of each other. And I was above um, just one person and the, your bunk mate, um, uh, was your partner and so we would all work in shifts and we would have three hours on um, each shift and so the shifts uh, would be either helping to steer the boat helping the captain to steer the boat um, another shift was doing the science another shift was cooking a meal and another shift was cleaning up and so you would rotate through these shifts throughout the night and so you would only sleep for three hours at a time um, and it sounds horrible, but your body fully adjusts. And it was actually a, an amazing little community that we built. And um, I have to say, I, I think it was also amazing to be surrounded by all women. 
And I remember one night, to just to tell a little story, I think it was our third night at sea, we hit bad weather and land was no longer visible and waves were slamming over the rails and we picked up speed to about 35 knots, which is a lot. And we had to reef the mainsail, which means reducing the area of the sail. So you let it down a little bit to help balance the boat in bad weather. So you want to catch less wind, so hopefully you're not leaning so far, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And um, I just remember that our captain, her voice, you you know, it's, it's raining really heavily. Uh, we had to clip in. You're wearing these life jackets that then you clip in um, onto the side, these lines, and so that if you are thrown overboard, uh, you don't get lost at sea, that you're, right, that you're with the boat still. And um, so you can't really see the captain, but I just remember her voice and how clear and calm and collected she was. And here's this incredible female sailor who has crossed oceans and danced with many, many storms. And it was so inspiring to be surrounded by all women. And we just tackled this storm throughout the night. We lost, um, we lost radar for a little bit, I remember, which was a little terrifying. And I didn't think it was terrifying at the time, but I remember my family telling me because um, you could follow our, our boat online. And I remember um, my family had fo was following me and it just stopped <laughs> in, in late in the evening and they could no longer track us. And I think that was super terrifying for everyone left on land. But um, for us, it was this incredibly inspiring moment. And the next day, one of the side effects of this storm was that um, phyto and zooplankton rich waters had clogged our water filtration system, so we no longer had a functioning shower, which is also right. funny with all women. So for the rest of our voyage, we had to just ration um, like a quarter of a bucket once every three or four days, each person could shower. I don't want to be on that boat at all. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It's so but <laughs> so stinky. But um, it was it was an amazing experience, and then. Um, it was also interesting to learn because it was these, this water, this phyto and zooplankton rich water was so thick um, that these small translucent organisms, they also were filling up the sleeves of our mantletrol. And we did our best washing them back into the sea since these are the building blocks of the food chain and what provides nearly half of the oxygen we breathe. And so we knew how important this was, but it made it so clear and really obvious to us how plastic can just easily hide amongst them and be mistaken as edible to marine life. Yeah, um, and then it and it gets the the research that I came across um, in my article suggested that the microplastics actually uh, get into the uh, the digestive system of larger marine life like fish, but it can also get in the blood. Is did that yeah. prove true for you guys as well? Exactly right. And I think that's what's so disturbing in a way. And there's still so much unknown. You know, we're only at the beginning of understanding what this all means, um, especially when you relate it back to human health, because we are, you know, we're so, so much of our world is so focused on humans. And so you always, I feel like, have to relate it, sadly, back to human health because that's how people will actually make a change. Yeah. And um, so until recently, few studies have been conducted on the potential health effects 
to humans. Various chemicals um, used in plastic pr production have been found to cause a wide range of health issues. Um, but scientists can't really say that plastic is the definitive root because there are individual factors such as lifestyle and genetics. And so scientists often use phrases such as linked to or can cause, um, which allows, you know, it leaves room for interpretation in the industry and for government, which is pretty frustrating. But um, what scientists do know are that microplastics are kind of this amazing host for these leach chemicals. And um, so if fish are ingesting it, and if you eat fish, it's pretty likely that you have plastic inside yourself, inside you as well. So what and, does microplastic look like, like under a microscope? You know, it, look, it looks like just tiny little, um, like the fibers are very clear. They, they're long and skinny. They look like a tiny miniature rope. Um, and then other plastic just looks like a little chunk, what you would imagine. A lot of it you can see with the naked eye, but what makes it so clear that it's plastic are the abnormal colors, like the neon yellow, the bright blue. Um, it's just so clear that this is an inorganic material that is in the ocean. So you're less than a week into this voyage and you encounter this terrible storm. And, and yeah. a lot of you, if you've never been on a sailboat in rough weather, um, it's dicey like sailboats while they're going anyway or they lean uh, because you're catching wind and it's pushing the boat over and they're designed to do that but when you get in a storm you're getting pounded by waves um did it feel like you were in like a heavyweight boxing match that night completely and i was so sore the next day and you don't really realize it at the time but you know, you're, you're kind of surfing because the bow of the boat is crashing down over these waves. And so each time you go up a bit and then it crashes down and you have to just, you have to adjust. Your body has to recalibrate to this, to this new normal. And um, every other wave is just whipping you in the face with salt. And I, I, I don't know if it's my personality, but every time I would get whipped in the face with a new wave I would just start laughing because it's so funny it honestly feels like someone was just dumping a bucket of water on you and so you have a moment to breathe and then it would just come right back at you and when you're going through something like that with a group that you um, feel very connected to it can it's it was a little scary at times but when I look back on it I I just remember it being fun you feel like you're fully um, in an adventure and it really bonds you. After that, it was almost a blessing probably in a way that um, it happened early in our voyage because it really bonds everyone. When you go through something, something like that, it's, it's an incredibly bonding experience. Unfortunately, a number of, um, of women were seasick. I somehow dodged that. Um, so that is a bummer. That's a real bummer to be seasick. And, um, a number of, of women were just up on, on, on the stern of the boat um, vomiting, which and is no fun. You just can't, like, you're at sea, so you can't get unseasick. Exactly, exactly. Eventually your body readjusts. Actually, you know what's funny is I uh, got land sick when I ended the voyage and I went back on land. I was land sick because my body had fully recalibrated and had adjusted to this constant 
sort of movement with the waves that when I was suddenly on land and still, I was t I felt completely nauseous. Like you got um, dizzy because of the lack of motion? Yeah, yeah, totally. And a number of sailors say that. Um, but I think I was lucky. I grew up sailing, and so I think I got my land legs early on, um, just with my, my parents are both big sailors. And so being out on the boat from a very early age, I think definitely helped me in this situation. So you're um, already comfortable on the ship like day one. I am. And that was not the case for a lot of people. Um, were there so, crew members who, ha who were not like hardcore sailors? Yeah, there were a few had ne who had never been on a boat. Actually, I would say the majority were not hardcore sailors. We had an, a core crew, so a captain and a first hand um, and a deck mate. But um, everyone else, I was, Emily obviously uh, was a huge sailor. I grew up sailing and there may have been, I think there was one other, um, the photographer had been sailing. But um, otherwise, it was, it was the first experience for many of these women, um, which was really cool because it, it allowed us, where I was being taught how to do science, um, I, could help a, I could help out when it came to sailing and just helping people be comfortable. Um, and that was really important. At one point, our steering cable snapped, and so we had to, um, <laughs> our, our captain had to climb underneath where the bilge is, which is disgusting and obviously smells terrible, yeah. and while we're out at sea and try to fix it. And um, so s some of us had to step up and help and help uh, do other things to keep the boat going. Um, but, it, it, you know, it was it was it was amazing. And it was such an adventure. So tell us about what happens after that night. Um, you know, your showers are broken, but obviously you've got a long way to go. Um, where was your final destination? So we ended up what we did was we did a huge sort of triangle. So we went out into the Pacific Ocean, um, where the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is. And tell, tell everybody what that is. So um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, or the North Pacific Gyre, is where currents accumulate around accumulate ocean plastic. It's, there are already natural currents. There are five gyres in our ocean. But um, the North Pacific Gyre is known to be the greatest accumulation of ocean plastic um, in the world. And there, Emily, um, what's interesting is she is actually conducting an around-the-world trip to create um, the most comprehensive data set of plastic pollution. But on our trip, we were just focusing on the North Pacific Gyre. And um, one way that you can kind of imagine this, everyone was thinking that it's actually an island. It's not. It kind of looks like plastic soup. Um, where Gross. you see, yeah, it's disgusting, where you see just plastic floating in the ocean um, for days and days on end. But um, it, the island and where it accumulates is all under the ocean. And so it's not, it's not an island that you would see with your naked eye. But if you were to dive down, you could see it just as plastic soup just goes for miles and miles. Wow, so um, that's your destination. Yeah. And then we... Uh, sort of turned back um, to finish the triangle and ended up in Seattle. So along the way, did you have more adventures? I mean, you've already got your yeah. sisterhood is forged and now you're yeah. out there. I guess you don't have to worry about like pirates in that part of the world, but. No, you don't. I mean, it can be lonely not seeing sea. And so 
it was very strange to find comfort amongst um, shipping vessels that we would occasionally see. It just felt like you weren't so alone. Yeah. One of the most magical moments of the whole trip was a family, a pod of orcas, came and visited our boat. And to see these majestic creatures um, from the mother orca and the, and the parent orcas to these two little baby orcas swim right under our boat and kind of hang around and check us out for a little while. It just felt like this gift from the ocean, just putting into perspective why we're out here, what we're trying to do this research for. That was one of the most um, magical experiences. Um, another was when we were still close to Vancouver, um, we went to do a beach cleanup on this area called the Broken Islands, okay. which is a cluster of more than 90 small islands that are uninhabited in the middle of the Barkley Sound, which is off the west coast of Vancouver Island. And as we headed towards um, the uninhabited islands, and they're known as Sisa by the Sehat First Nation people, um, and I remember we were approaching it. It was late afternoon, and there was this heavy, heavy, heavy fog that day. And as we got close to these islands, the fog lifted just enough to expose these jagged shorelines and these thick, thick trees that crowd the water's edge. And I have to admit, we played the theme song to Jurassic Park <laughs> to approach the shore, which definitely added to this dramatic moment. I do it was that way so more amazing. often than I should do. <laughs> but we were in the middle of nowhere. There are no humans, no nothing. And so we're like, this is an incredible moment. And the fog was lifting and this we were just blasting this theme song on the speakers of our boat. Um, but the next morning we woke up and um, we headed out to do this beach cleanup. And this was the first time I really felt that land sickness. Um, but as we watched, walked along the shore picking up the plastic, I couldn't believe how many different languages uh, we found on the, this plastic on the shores of these islands. Oh, really? Islands, because, I mean, we were finding water bottles from the United States, food containers from the Philippines, plastic bags from China. It was so shocking that this secluded ancient landmass had weathered all kinds of storms in a way, but nothing was quite like the onslaught of this styrofoam and bottle caps, single-use dental flossers, sandals, um, discarded fishing gear. I mean, you name it. And we, it was just everywhere. It's all and this crap that we've accumulated in like the last hundred years of our civilization, too. Exactly. It's so... Recent and it's just so disturbing what what damage we're having on the natural world. Styrofoam in particular, because it's so hard to clean up. It just breaks down into these tiny balls, and it looks just like sand. And it's it reminds me of the microplastic in the ocean. There's no way the big chunks you can clean up, but these tiny little pieces of styrofoam and microplastic is just it's nearly impossible to get out. Um, and so I think seeing that, um, it was just, it was pretty disturbing. And, and that's only what we could see and pick up. Who knows how many billions of microplastics were wave pounded into this rocky shoreline. So somewhere along the way, is there a moment where you realize, I don't really want to be a filmmaker. I'm going to change the entire direction of my life. Yep. That happened on this boat. And 
it it just became so clear to me. I know people describe different moments that they have this aha moment. This this trip was my aha moment. It just it put things into perspective for me where I was thinking how could I be spending my time? I love films and I will always want to have film be a part of my life in some way, but film has the power to educate and to change behavior. It's an incredibly powerful tool and um, story in, in, in general. I think story in filmmaking, story in books, story can really change the way that people view the world. And it just, this experience completely made me want to um, change how I was leading my life and, and want to use film and the arts to make an impact on children, especially. You know, when we, we kind of circle back as we draw to a close here, but we talked about the Lorax earlier. And yeah, I mean, I love the Lorax. The movie is actually good as well. But I remember a movie from the 80s. Uh, it's like one of my earliest childhood memories is watching this movie called Fern Gully. Oh, yes. Remember that? I love that movie. Great. It's like, uh, I guess it's in the Amazon and there's these... Um, fairy folk that sort of live down there and uh, the whole reason for the movie is to illustrate like deforestation yeah and that always stuck with me like this image of a cartoon saw truck machine just plowing through the forest you know killing habitat and everything so i think even today like that's a powerful visual even you know i'm 32 now and i probably saw that when i was like five or six yeah it never left yeah so the stories that you're creating will hopefully be something that in 20, 30 years from now, we're sitting around the bar at the Explorers Club and there's some new kids and they read your stuff and that helped them get there, you know? Yeah, that's, I hope that will be true. That's my, my goal in life is to just, if I can inspire a few kids to change their behavior, I will feel like I have succeeded. So a couple of closing questions on X expedition. Yeah. Uh, the first one I have for you is, uh, based on personal experience, I, the women explorers that I've talked to, um, they all had a, a sort of epiphany where they said, screw waiting on somebody to go with me. I'm going to go on my own. Yeah. Do you feel like, your sisters on that vessel gained the confidence to go out and travel on their own and do things that they might not have otherwise done before? I definitely think so. I think what was so unique about this trip and these uh, voyages, um, these expeditions, was that part of the magic of it was that it was all women. And um, I'll tell you a little story. I actually, when our steering cable snapped, it was so funny because um, we were fixing it at sea, but we picked up um, the attention of the U.S. Coast Guard. This is when we were pretty close to coming back. And I remember um, the Coast Guard decided to come out and check on us. Um, And we radioed them saying, we're totally fine. We're just working on fixing our steering cable. It was a little bit tough because it, it was... Uh, windy that day so there were some swells but we were totally in control and they arrived and it's of course it's all men u.s coast guard uh, approaching a boat of all women and they they pull up to our boat and they say may we please speak with the captain 
And she said, yes, I'm here. He said, may we please speak with the captain? And she said, yes, this is the captain. And they could not believe that this was a woman, of, a, a boat of all women explorers under a female captain. They probably but it thought was, they were dreaming. <laughs> probably, probably. But it was so inspiring to see our captain um, say, yes, yes, I am the captain. And that's part of the magic of that trip and I think it definitely inspired a number of these women to go out and go on their own. I mean, they're so capable and they and all women are so incredible and, and should be doing more than what they already are doing. And um, so we keep in touch still and I know a bunch of, of women have gone on. Um, Emmy, the Dr. Knapper, our lead scientist, has gone on a number of National Geographic expeditions since um, we were in the Pacific Ocean. And so um, definitely, I think so many people feel inspired and empowered after that trip and will continue to do so. Sarah, how can people that are interested learn more about X Expedition? So they can check it out on the website. It's I think it's xexpedition.org. Um, yeah, two X's. Yes, X two Expedition. X's. It's xexpedition.org. Uh, Com. There's an Instagram.com yeah. and there's an Instagram. Um, you know, it's a bit of a bummer because of the uh, pandemic. Um, Emily had to stop the uh, tr the trip that was happening right now. They um, this around the world voyage where different women can get on at different points. But the boat itself, no one will actually go around the world, but the boat itself will go around the world and the science will be this whole comprehensive data set. Um, they had to stop it because of the pandemic. And so they've started it and they're going to continue it in a few months, hopefully. But it's going to take two years. And at the end of it, Emily is going to have this incredible, incredible collection of data about plastic in the ocean. What happens to the fantastic. data once it's gathered? So that I would have to check on. I know that it, it's just going to be an incredible tool for um, for many universities, for scientists, um, and hopefully can inspire some policy change. Um, that's the ultimate goal, to change it from the source. Because once it's in the ocean, it's pretty tough to, to clean it up as it breaks down into these microplastics. It's nearly impossible. But if we can inspire change makers and policy makers and industry itself to change how they are doing things, um, and stop it from the source, that is extremely powerful and what's needed. How can people follow you and keep up with your books? So if they follow me on Instagram, it's just my name, Sarah with an H, Michler, M-I-C-H-L-E-R. I will post about it there and I'll post about um, other trips I'm getting up to. Um, we don't have time, I don't think, but I recently went on a really cool trip with the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council um, to study gray whales, which was awesome. So check it out there and you can learn more. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to get you back on to talk about the gray whale thing. Um, that would be really fun. Yeah, sure. I need to save some content for season three. I, <laughs> season one was like a handful of episodes and already season two is like spiraling out of control. And <laughs> I'm really lucky for that so awesome this is so much fun yeah we're growing by leaps and bounds and it's thanks to guests like you so sarah 
thank you so much for coming on and sharing part of your story. Of course. Thank you, Joe. This was wonderful. So much fun. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast or visit the website soldoutblog.com.